Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Al D. This is a show designed for aspiring current and former MBAs looking for advice on how you can grow your career through an MBA degree. During each episode, I'll talk to MBA students, graduates, and leaders about the MBA experience, navigating the workplace, and career development so you can learn how to develop and achieve your own version of career success through an MBA and beyond. Hey everyone, welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today's guest is Aaron Fung. Aaron is a Vanderbilt Owen School of Management alum and currently is an inclusion and diversity business partner at Pinterest. Really enjoyed this conversation with Aaron. Been following him on LinkedIn for a while and it was great to be able to connect. Uh, during this conversation, Aaron and I touched on a number of things ranging from why he chose to go to business school in the first place, what he did immediately after business school, and how he's been able to make a number of career pivots along the way. And now he's actually a career coach, and he also shared some thoughts just in terms of what people get wrong about career transitions and what you can actually ask yourself to figure out if making a transition is right for you. We went deep also on Aaron's own reflections of his experience as an MBA graduate and what he's learned over the years. I love this conversation. If you're someone who's wondering how an MBA helps you grow your career, this is a great episode. So listen on in. Okay. Well, Aaron, it's so great to have you here. I'm excited to have this conversation. And before we jump in too far, I always love starting these conversations with a warm-up question. And my warm-up question for you, Aaron, is what was your first job and what did you learn from that experience? Yeah. First of all, thank you for having me here, Al. Uh, first job that I can remember was answering phones and sorting mail at my father's architecture firm. Not exactly a glamorous thing, and I can't even remember how old I was. But I, I think, as I think back on that time now, like the lesson there is, uh, you know, any job can be fun so long as you don't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, now, now you have the perspective to be able to say that. But it is, it is funny. I so. My first job was working at a golf course, but you're jogging my memory because I did have a number of occasions where my father also owned his own business. And particularly during the holidays or whenever I wasn't in school or had like a, a break or something, every now and then uh, he would put me to work. And yeah. I think eventually he did pay me every now and then, but working for a family business is always a, always a fun adventure as well. And it's funny too, because when you say like first job, I always think about a job someone else gives you. And actually now sure. that I'm thinking about it, the first thing I can remember doing that was even work-like was I used to push a little cart around my house and I would like to play store with my mom and dad. Yeah, so one funny. day I rolled into her office with like all these things I'd stolen from her office desk. And, she, and I'm like, hey, I've got things to sell here. It's like, is that my stapler? I'm like, yeah, five dollars. <laughs> It's like, no, 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 that's my stapler. Six dollars. Yeah. <laughs> getting like fleeced by my own son who took my own stuff. So maybe entrepreneurship was like my first job. And I'm sure there's a lesson in there somewhere. Well, I, if I remember correctly, Jim, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it, you eventually did work in sales. And so maybe that was really just your first first tester and teaser into potentially becoming an account executive one day. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But before we we, we do that, Tell us about yourself. What were you doing prior to going to business school and why did you choose to get an MBA originally? Yeah, so uh, my name is Aaron Fung. Prior to business school, I, I worked in uh, wealth management sales uh, at Merrill Lynch and American Express. And I also worked for a nonprofit called Ascend, which does leadership development programs for Asian professionals in corporate America. So, you know, very different jobs. And in 2000, you know, seven, eight, nine, when I was applying to business schools, I knew that I wanted to do something different, but I didn't know exactly what that was. So I think I spent a lot of time looking into business school as a way of figuring out, can I explore? Can I satiate my curiosity? You know, and I had a lot of questions around topics of, of people and specifically, you know, the HR side of, of, of 
the house. So I went to, to Vanderbilt, uh, the Owen Graduate School of Management for my MBA. I studied human and organizational performance uh, along with strategy and finance. But basically, it, it was always around like, can I take what my experiences have taught me around wealth management or investment management or people development uh, and figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life? The career switching path is certainly a, uh, a definitely a popular one and a, certainly a good reason. And Vanderbilt's HOP program is uh, one of the best, if I remember correctly, in terms of concentrations around human capital and yeah. was back then and still is now. Just as a follow-up to that, if you really think back to those two years in business school, as you were making that career transition and moving into something new, was there one or two things that really stuck out to you that maybe really accelerated that or really gave you the confidence to know that this this new path that you wanted to explore was in fact going to be a, a great fit for you? Well, it's funny you say that because I think my path to something new actually first took me back to something that was tried and true. And I'm sure we'll talk about this at length today. But I think that in, I remember visiting the campus and the, the class that I was visiting was called Strategic Alignment of Human Capital. And the case study that they were discussing that day was an Asian nonprofit with leadership issues. And so I'm sitting in the front row and, and the, the professor calls on me and I start to give my perspective. And one of the students says, I'm sorry, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I work for an Asian <laughs> nonprofit that focuses on leadership development. And for a while, they thought I was the, the guest speaker of plants, which I thought was really hilarious. But it spoke to, I think, the, the topics that really I found passion and resonance in and around diversity and inclusion, leadership development, education and training. So I think that this goes back to that point I made earlier, like until you know better, anything can be the best class you've ever taken, especially if it's the only class you've ever taken. And I think that once you have a chance to actually be able to compare things side by side, you can say, oh, I like this much more than that, or I don't like this much more than that. And then you get to figure out the reasons why. So that kind of started me down that path of, of uh, organizational development. That's a That's a funny story. It reminds me of during my second year in business school, I was taking a class, and at the time, it was the most one of the most popular classes at UNC, and it might still be now, but it was called Leading from the Middle, and it was all about how do you lead when you have no formal power or influence, and yeah. at the same time, I was also in student government for the MBA program, which... Talk about talk about no formal power or actual like influence. The student government is like a really good example where you get put in a position where you quote unquote have a title, but you know you you kind of really really don't. And so yeah. I just remember every week there was maybe three or four of us who were in student government who were in the class, and every week we would be in a class learning a different case or going over a different topic, and one of us would just raise our hand and be like, okay, so hypothetically speaking. If this this specific situation, which we were dealing with in the student government, were in the were actually in the corporate workplace, um, how would you handle it? And our professor was was kind enough to indulge us in our hypotheticals, which were very much real things that we were, were actually living out um, at the time because we were making a number of big changes and getting buy-in was really really hard. But it was one of those moments where it was uh, art was imitating life and life was imitating art, like in that specific moment. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's funny you bring up the story because I think that in so many circumstances in life you don't have hard power or situational mm -hmm. authority, right? Yeah. So how do you use influence and persuasion to get to an outcome? And I think that applies in so many circumstances, right? Whether it's in student government or, or if you're in sales or if you're like, I mean, I currently work in diversity and inclusion. So it's like, I don't have the authority or power over virtually anybody, right? So I right. have to think about that kind of influence as a means of achieving an outcome where it's like, hey, I want you to be aware of something that you didn't know. So how do I do that? And I think it, it speaks to those kinds of lessons learned right there. So it's it's very clear you have a genuine interest and curiosity in, in the people side of things. I'd just be curious, any idea of where that might come from or, or or maybe you know where that stems from? But yeah, I would be curious to know how that came to life for you. 
part of it, I think, is, is genetic and part of it is, is situational and learned. Like my grandmother opened a travel agency in San Francisco's Chinatown, which my mother then took over. And, and one of the things they always kind of brought up was this idea of the power of travel and the power of different perspectives. And funny enough, I didn't actually get to experience this until I was much older, like into high school and then certainly well into my post-graduation of college years because I didn't have the same kind of uh, ambitions or aspirations to, to travel the world as a youngster as I do now. But I think they always taught me about their experiences of this is when I took a tour group to, to the, the pyramids at Giza, or this is taking a tour group to Japan or, or to China, you know, just after it reopens. And I think it's, it's that perspective kind of like sat there dormant in me for a really long time. And then even after like undergraduate, you know, I didn't have necessarily the, the, the money or the resources to travel abroad as much as I wanted to. And over time, it kind of became this, this like seed that kind of had stayed dormant and then was activated. And when I went to business school, I had the chance to go to Peru for part of our Latin uh, Business Association's class trip. I had a chance to go to Southeast Asia with classmates who were from Hanoi and from other parts of, of the region. And, and I think that once you start to understand perspectives that are not your own, it, it creates a very different self-awareness, right? Like, what does someone else think? What does the society think? If you're dropped into a foreign country, immersed in a different language that you don't understand, or a different way of doing things that you're not used to, I think it forces you to create perspectives that, that you know, you figure like, this is something I like. And as an example, like when I went to uh, the Netherlands for the first time six years ago, one of the things I started to understand about Dutch society and culture is that's a very direct, very candid type of, of, of society. And something about that really resonated with me to the point where I figured out like, oh, if I ever had to move or wanted to move, where would I want to move? And Amsterdam's at the top of that list because there's something so refreshing about candor and directness that I don't get in a lot of parts of the world, but in the Netherlands is present like everywhere, which I love. So you get to explore the, your curiosity in the people side of things and people development and, and human capital. Yep. What did you do after you graduated from business school? What was that first job or uh, role and or what was that experience like? So you remember earlier how I said, you know, I went back to tried and true before I went into what I really wanted to do. Yeah. When I was in business school, you know, I, I applied to a lot of different internships into jobs, right? And so I had interned at Credit Suisse in their private banking division, which is exactly what I'd been doing my first five years out of undergrad, you know, wealth management and sales. And I did so because I applied for a number of different jobs and it was the first job to offer me uh, or first company to offer me an internship. And sometimes you, you fear not having an option. So, you know, I took it and knowing that I wasn't necessarily in love with it, but that I was familiar with it. So after I had my internship, I had a great experience in the sense that I was rated top of my class, was given an offer and sat on the offer for a while thinking about what other alternatives were there. But ultimately I took that job because again, I was afraid of not having something coming out of business school. And with six figures of student loan debt you know, and the anxiety there, I think I capitulated to what was going to pay the bills and pay down my student loan as opposed to doing what I wanted to do. And my second year was all about studying you know, the HLP classes. So the strategic alignment of human capital, compensation, decision-making, leading change, all these topics that I really grew to love were courses that I was taking while I was making this decision to basically forego the reason that I went to business school. And I, I actually told people before I went back to business school that I was never going to go back to the banking world. And what did I do? I went back to the banking world. And it was it was a hard experience because I actually had a, a wonderful graduation experience. I go to my onboarding. I mean, they, they basically took us to Zurich for three weeks and then New York for six weeks for training. So it was an incredible experience. But once all the training and onboarding was done, I was in the job in San Francisco 
I very quickly realized that this was not the job that I went back to school for. And in fact, I did not have to go back to school to go back into wealth management, which is a really kind of frustrating realization to think that you've just put in two years of time, a lot of money and opportunity cost to basically go do something that I wasn't passionate about, that I didn't need an MBA to go back into doing. So that was a pretty tough kind of misstep in terms of my first job out of business school. I'd be curious just to riff for a second. What what was that experience like for you? Not so much the experience itself, but the point you just made, that realization that the step that you had taken maybe perhaps wasn't, or well, two things. One, it, it wasn't necessarily aligned with what you initially thought you were going to business school for. And then maybe number two, in your own words, as you said, perhaps a, a misstep. You know, what was what was that experience like, kind of reflecting upon that and, and having to work through that? It's incredibly disheartening to to realize that something you've poured yourself into, all your energy, your passion, your money, your time, uh, has not been to achieve something that you want to achieve. Or in fact, the opposite, right? Like literally what I said to people before is like, I don't want to go back into this industry. And it's mm-hmm. taken me the better part of the last decade to actually articulate why that is. Like, I just had no real alignment or passion for the actual product we were selling. Like managing money for very wealthy families, just it doesn't, it doesn't make me happy. It doesn't yeah, tap into a skill set, a joy, a capability that I want to be doing on a daily basis, right? And I think that when when you go to business school to make a change and and you have this opportunity, you know, but you don't take it, I think it raised this question around like, did I miss my window? And I think there were a lot of days and nights where, you know, I'd go to work in my suit, you know, with my Tumi shoulder bag, because I was a banker. And, and I would think, have I blown the biggest opportunity of my life to actually change and do something different with my career? So, you know, the, the whole fall of 2012, right, I, I'm trying to do my job as well as I can and really, quite frankly, struggling. And at the same time, trying to figure like, well, if I'm not going to keep doing this, what do I keep doing? What do I do? And that's ultimately how I started the process of changing into human capital and consulting and how I was able to kind of redirect my career. Yeah. And uh, so maybe let's let's talk about that. But before we do, I'd just be curious in that, particularly in that first job, even though it maybe wasn't ideally what you wanted to be in, it sounds like you were at least doing decently well. Was there anything from your MBA experience that was really helpful to you still being able to succeed, even if it wasn't necessarily the path that you wanted to be on? I mean, I think that... You know, when you go to business school, whether it's part-time, full-time, executive, or other, you gain a lot of knowledge and a lot of perspective, which I think is critical for any job. And, and certainly in private banking, it was about understanding the capital markets, understanding what was happening at a, at a macroeconomic level, but also being able to relate to very specific things that were happening in the world. So if we're talking about one particular company or one particular leader, generally had to have a sense as to what was going on out there. I remember at this time, we're thinking about examples of of conversations with clients that would get their attention. And I talked about how I think Disney had just acquired Marvel, right? And so there was a a conversation around how Disney was uh, going to be regarded as a company. This is 10 years ago, right? So I think it was right in the middle of Bob Iger's tenure. But, you know, it's like I had learned in, in classes about mergers and acquisitions and how sometimes they destroy value or destroy brands or revolutionize it. And, and here we sit in 2023 now knowing that Lucasfilm and Marvel were two of the best acquisitions of all time, right? Just because of the content it creates. And I think the ability to bring the perspective on what that means for an organization or a business is something you learn because you're, you're studying it nonstop for two years, whether it's the, the, the finance or accounting side of it, or if it's the human capital side of it, or if it's supply chain side of it. So 
eventually you do realize it's not, this is the path that you don't want to be on, or this is a path you don't want to be on. Yeah. And you made a transition. How did that come about and what did you end up doing next? So I think this speaks to the power of connections. It's the old saying, it's not what you know, but who you know, that I completely agree with. And I started talking to classmates of mine, either in my year or the year right above me, who had gone into human capital work or in HR work. And I spent a lot of time just picking brains, uh, asking people for their time for co- you know virtual coffee chats, for phone calls, obviously in the pre-Zoom, pre-Teams era. And it was, it was important because I was asking people like, what do you think I should do? Like, how do you think I should do this? You know, is there a way that I can make this transition happen? And many of them were very supportive, saying, I think you would do very well in this space. Keep having these conversations. So basically, one conversation led to another. Most of these were at Deloitte in their human capital practice because Vanderbilt has a very strong connection to Deloitte and a number of alums from my business school have gone to there and and been very successful. So basically, I had about, you know, half dozen, dozen conversations with alumni and friends, uh, eventually culminating in a meeting with a woman who is one of my dearest friends and mentors. Her name is Erica King, who was a director at Deloitte at the time and is now a CHRO. And she was the one who who basically helped me get connected into the interview process. And she had the seniority to, to do so, but also she had the trust in me as a candidate that it was the right fit and that I would not make her look bad. And I think sometimes we we don't give enough attention to the value in sponsorship and connection. Like we talk about networking, you meet someone, you trade a business card, you send an email. And for a lot of people, that's kind of where it ends. But Erica and I had known each other since my first week in business school because she'd spoken on the panel. We'd kept in touch. There were no expectations around what I, you know, I was going to get from her or what she was going to get from me, but we had a very strong kind of mentorship bond. And because she got me the, the, the chance to get in that door, it ultimately allowed me to get an offer from Deloitte Consulting and I joined their human capital practice in 2013. And basically I look at her and that moment is kind of like putting me on a very different path because the day I got that offer, the recruiter called me and said, I've never given an offer to someone with your background. And I couldn't tell if that was a compliment or an insult. Uh, I took it as a former, but I kind of laughed saying, yeah, it's not surprising because most folks don't come into human capital with this background. But it taught me that lesson around if you want something, you have to go after it. And it's not just about submitting a a thousand resumes into the blind. It's about understanding where you can have someone with credibility and and the reputation to help you succeed to actually push you through that first door. Hey there, it's Al. And thanks so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. I wanted to take a quick break to ask you a small favor. I'm loving doing this show and I hope you're enjoying it too. Unfortunately, it's still pretty hard to spread the word on podcasts. And that's where I would really love your help. If you're enjoying this episode, I would really appreciate it if you take a few minutes to leave a review and rate this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, or simply share it on social media or send it to a friend. I'm incredibly grateful for your support. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. I think that story illustrates a number of things. I just want to highlight. Well, first and foremost, I think it illustrates, again, the importance of networking relationships. And that's certainly something you get in business school, but you can get that in a lot of other ways. I think the second thing it also illustrates is that working really hard and being really driven is, is important. It's, it's kind of what I think probably got you to a position to realize that you needed to make a change and you needed to put in the work to do it. Yeah. But there are many de- decisions that are made about your career that happen in rooms that you cannot be in yes. by people that sometimes you cannot directly influence. And that speaks to the power of the relationship you had with Erica. Right. Yeah. And so there's this kind of duality of this inner work that you have to do to figure out exactly what you want and, and have the drive to do it. But then 
the outer work of having those relationships with people uh, who can advocate for you on your behalf. And, and in this case, really go out of their way at a time when, I, I mean, I think it's probably uh, a little bit more common today to, 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 uh, for someone like with your background to do this, but it still might be a little taboo is not the right word. It might be a little just different than, than most traditional ways to, to kind of get into the firm, but uh, she was willing to take a chance on you. And that, yeah. and that made a huge difference. Well, and the word that I think it is, is daunting. It was incredibly daunting yeah. for me, right? Because you have this, this mountain that you have to climb that you've never climbed before. You're not sure what tools you need to get there. Right. And, and every job I've gotten basically over the last decade has been through a relationship. And I make that point to any aspiring MBA students, candidate, graduate, because this conversation around networking in the business school context sometimes is people look at it as a transaction. And I'm like, that's a right. very dangerous mindset. Because if you looked at your best friends in a transactional mindset, they would very quickly kick you to the curb because you'd be very transactional. You'd be looking at it for, for what's in it for you. And, and there's this wonderful HBR post that I shared recently that talks about what mindset are you bringing to the table when you're creating connections? And if it's just about what you can get from people, people will not be in your network for very long and certainly not at the, the level that you want it to be, which is why I tell everybody, lead with what you can offer someone else and don't have any expectations that you're ever going to get anything back because you may not. And that's okay because as long as you're not always taking, 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 you create relationships because you want to create relationships, then people will be there to support you in, in times where you need their help. Just reflecting back for a second, because I think the bond and relationship you developed with Erica, it sounds like it happened pretty organically. I'd just be curious to know, with the benefit of hindsight, what what really do you think either you did or happened that enabled that to come to life? Because I think a lot of people out there probably listen to this and are like, oh, I, I would love me one of Erica's. But how did that, I'd just be curious to know if you uh, can reflect back or talk about how, what you think uh, enabled that to, to happen or blossom. This is one of those situations where I'd actually love to ask Erica this and, and say like, well, yeah, what was yeah. your first impression of me, right? Because yeah. I remember her meeting her during like our first few weeks because there was a, a panel of alumni who came in so we could better understand the major, right? The human and organizational performance. And connected that day, and I can't remember specifically what I said, but I know that over the following couple of years, we kept in touch, you know, every once in a while. And it was usually something like, hey, I found this really interesting article that I think might be relevant for what your team is working on doing. Little things, right? Uh, again, it doesn't have to be an ulterior motive or an agenda. It's just, hey, really appreciate your perspective or insight. Or I might ask a question every once in a while. And I think that every person is going to be different. So you, you can't necessarily adopt this approach with everybody. But figuring out what drives people in terms of how they build relationships is absolutely critical. Sometimes it's about not putting as much effort in and letting things just spontaneously happen. Other times people want it to be very structured or forced or, or, or very, you know, articulated in a specific way. And it's like, eh, that's, that's may not work. So I, I think it's about being open-minded and flexible with the ways that you create relationships. There are some people you'll meet in business school who from the first day, you know, your best friends or others from the first day who, you know, they're your mortal enemy. And it's, it's making me recall a story, which is on the very first day of orientation, I met someone with whom we clashed immediately. And it was because I cracked a joke about what rank he was in the military. You know, I think I called him Sarge. Uh, and he's like, I was a second lieutenant. Don't ever say that. And it was a joke because my father served in the U.S. Army. My grandfather served the, as a civilian in the U.S. Navy. I have a ton of respect for the military. But that started us on a very bad foot. And... Over time, actually, we, we became very good friends. I saw him actually last month or a few months ago for our 10-year reunion because we had to work in a, in, a, in a group together for our investments class. 
And we slowly developed a begrudging respect for each other because of what we could share with one another and teach one another. But I think it's about understanding like people approach relationships in very different ways. Yep. So one size fits all very rarely fits all. And I think on top of that, you, you just have to figure out what jives with people. And it, it would be, it would be naive of me to say that you could just ask people what they, what they feel like, hi, it's the first time meeting you. What kind of relationships do you like to build? It's a little bit awkward, right? So you just have to, to, to infer based on body language. You know, you can always reach out and say, Hey, going to grab a meal. Want to come join me? Hey, I've got an article. Do you, do, would you find this helpful? Like just try and, and see what works. It's clear that you had a lot of rich experiences in business school and certainly learned a number of things. Given where you are today, I'd be curious to know what what's maybe the most important thing you learned in business school that is valuable to whatever you're doing today? Yeah, I, I appreciate this question a lot because uh, thinking back on two years of, of varied experiences, what stands out the most is actually something that was very uncomfortable at the time, which was, I think it's, the lesson is taking an unpopular view and what that may cost you and what that might gain you in terms of, of people buying in and supporting you or people basically casting you aside. And so what happened was I went on a study abroad between my first and second year to Beijing, to, to Peking University. And uh, it's a program that was drawing students from all over the world. You had students from the United States, you had students from Europe, all there to learn about China. You know, this is 2011. So the, the ascent of China was, was very much in progress. And there were a number of students from, from American business school there who with the exception of one or two, were incredibly disrespectful to Chinese culture, to the experience, to the point where they were reading magazines in class and they were uh, essentially dismissing any Chinese language training because like, I don't need to learn that. And it was incredibly ethnocentric. And and I had paid my own way through the program. Their program had paid their way there. And it was incredibly frustrating for me to be constantly distracted by a group of people who didn't want to be there, seemingly. So after the program was over, I sent a letter to the dean of their business school saying, hey, this was my experience. And, and being the only Chinese American person in that program, I find it incredibly disrespectful that your, your students would be so dismissive of Chinese society and culture and the class and the program itself. And very quickly, the, the, the dean responded to me apologizing for what had happened, appreciating the feedback. And it was interesting because the, the repercussions of that email were far reaching and, and not to my knowledge. So I had classmates who would ping me in the middle of summer or even at the end of the summer saying, did you do something to students from this school? And I'm like, what happened? Oh, well, apparently your your conversation had impacts where all the students were made aware and, and you know, saying, hey, you have a responsibility for the brand of the school. And so my summer internship classmate asked me, did you know this guy? They're like, yeah, I know this guy. So, you know, at the time I, I kind of wondered like, well, is that going to hurt my reputation as being sort of a, someone who makes waves? And this is actually interesting because you know, I, I do a lot of work in, in Asian circles, right? Asian professionals, leadership mm-hmm. development. And I think one thing that is stereotypically attributed to Asians and Asian Americans is that we don't speak up. We don't make waves. And to hear about you know this reaction, my, my, my first reaction was, good. That's what mm-hmm. my intention was. It's to make people aware of that you have a responsibility to represent your organizations, whether it's your school or your company, your family or yourself. These students disrespected the experience for a lot of people. So they should know about that because that's something that will they won't ever change if they're not made aware of it. So I, I think 
I, I, I definitely, you know, lost connections to those students as a result of that. A bunch of them, you know, deconnected with me or disconnected with me on LinkedIn. I'm like, that's okay. But for people who, who know that, that that needs to be said, they were actually very strong supporters of mine. Yeah. Well, and I think the beauty of that too is, is that it, the people who disconnected with you are, are probably the people that you didn't necessarily want to be connected with moving forward anyway. And the people who or rec uh, applauded you and respected you for that are, are probably the people that you do want to be affiliated with or connected with. Yeah. And, and, and so it, it, in some ways it, even though I'm sure it was difficult, I mean, I, I think what it ultimately does is it, it brings you, brings you closer to the, the type of people that you want to be associated with and known, known, known to be associated with. Yeah. Well, and, and on top of that, I didn't answer the second half of your question, but it's like that translates into my current work in diversity and inclusion today, because there are things I need to say to people that will inherently make them uncomfortable because diversity and inclusion work by definition is going to involve topics that people aren't able to currently deal with or process, right? And I think that how do you, how do you confront someone or challenge someone who is saying or doing something that hurts other people or, or others, other people, and especially when these are people who are more senior or, or are very good at what they do. And, and it, it brings up a number of issues that are pretty common with diversity and inclusion professionals everywhere around microaggressions around that persuasion and influence how do you give feedback in a way that is received properly like if you just go up to someone and say you're a racist that doesn't always get the outcome you want because they may just double down or they may not be receptive to this. You're, you're, you're confronting them this is this is what has led me to kind of look at, at these kind of situations with a, a question mindset like how would you feel if someone took a piece of your identity and mocked it in the way you did their identity and it's something that I bring to like my coaching work. It's something I do every day in my diversity and inclusion work. And I find that the power of a question is that it gets people to unlock realizations in their mind, much more so than a confrontation or a challenge would. So you just alluded to it, but I wanted to ask you about it anyway, because it was one of the reasons I came across you and found you in the first place. You also, in addition to your day-to-day -day role, you are a career coach. And I would just love to know, based off of your own lived experience, making a couple transitions and certainly working with your own clients and people who are making career transitions, I'd be curious to know, what are some misconceptions or things that people get wrong about making career transitions? Yeah, so for a little bit of context, my day job, I work on the inclusion and diversity team at Pinterest. My my side hustle or, you know, is, is career coaching through a company I have called Coaching AF. And I think that what career coaching is sometimes by definition is a little bit uh, confusing or ambiguous, right? Even the word coach, right? People you typically associate it with someone like a sports coach who, who is telling you what to do, organizing the plays. And, and what I've learned about career coaching that I think most people would errantly assume is that it's not about me telling anyone what to do for the most part. There's a, a very strong foundation that I stand on, which is that you know what you need to do. It's just you've got all these blockers in the way preventing you from actually reaching that conclusion. Whether it's something society has taught you or your parents have taught you or, or even truths that you've, you've internalized that don't actually match up to what you believe, like what your values are or what you want. And so when people think about career transitions, I think they, they think about, I just need someone to tell me what to do. And there are certain parts of the journey where that's true, right? Updating your resume, doing interview prep for a specific company or type of interview, there's actually a strong value for someone to tell you what to do, right? Ask this question instead, be more open-ended, you know, do this calculation on a napkin, whatever, right? But I think that, that 
all these steps, you know, that I mentioned, like resume, interview prep, that all happens at the very end, right? As you're negotiating your offer, as you're thinking about the application, that that's like the, the last few steps in what is ultimately a journey of many, many steps. The beginning of that journey is much more, more critical for people to understand about like, what are you actually looking to get out of this? And the question that I pose to all of my coaching clients is, what role do you want work to play in your life? And, and that question is a little bit awkwardly phrased. So people kind of look at it and they, they scratch their head a little bit and say, what does that even mean? It's like, okay, well, let's try it with a more simplistic example. Uh, what role does a plumber play in your life? Well, he, she, or they will come whenever I've got a, a toilet issue or a tub issue and they'll unplug it. Yeah, they'll make sure the plumbing of the house works. That's their role. You pay them an hourly rate. Yes. So if you've never asked yourself that question of what role do you want work to play in your life, it's important to ask that. Is it the means to an end? Is it the end? Is it because you love to be busy? I want to earn X amount of dollars so I can take my family on vacation four times a year. Great. I want the role of work in my life to be all-encompassing because I want to become a partner at a law firm and I want the power, recognition, and compensation associated with it. Okay. Right? Like, you don't ask that question, then your career transition journey becomes very difficult because you haven't set the destination. And, and actually, forget about the destination. You haven't even set the direction. If you, you start with the career transition saying, I need to go from San Francisco to New York, okay, take a bus, hitchhike, take a plane. You can take a very long route by boat all the way around the continent, which I wouldn't recommend, right? But if you don't even know that you need to head east, then all the steps that you might take on that journey, you don't know whether it's taking you to the right place or not because you don't have the general direction set. So I think there's questions that are critical to any career transition that people just don't ask these days. I love that that question, uh, what role does work play in your life? And I think one of the things that strikes me about that question and I th why I think it can be so valuable in working with a coach sometimes is the fact that it is a forcing function in language to then reflect and put into words, I think sometimes things that you probably are thoughts in your head, but maybe don't necessarily make it into your own words that you speak out on paper. Yeah. And getting someone who, I, I remember the first time uh, someone asked me that, it wasn't a coach, but more of a mentor, uh, it kind of stopped me in my tracks, like you like you said. Uh, I had that lived same lived like experience of, of that. And that can facilitate so much and open so much that is easy to miss in just your day-to-day -day interactions of everything that you're trying to get done or do in your day-to-day -day job. Absolutely. In fact, you could tell I use a lot of metaphors in my work, but mm -hmm. like whenever I ask people these kinds of questions and they begin to externalize ideas, it's, it's kind of like exposing something to oxygen. Like if it's meant yeah. to breathe, it will thrive. If it's not right, you know, it's not, it's, it's not used to being in an oxygen rich environment. It will wilt and die. Right. Okay. So that's the same with an idea. You evict the idea from your brain and you expose it to the light of day and to oxygen. Does it thrive or does it yeah. die? Because right. if, for example, if I asked you what you want to do with your life and you said, I want to be a doctor, you know, I want to be a lawyer. I want to do this. And then you say it out loud and something just, you know, that, that twinge of regret strikes you in your stomach or in your heart. Guess what? That idea is dying. And there's a reason or multiple reasons for that. So yeah. when you do that and either wilts or it thrives, look at that reaction and figure out why is it thriving? And it's exactly yeah. the experience I had whenever I talk about diversity and inclusion, right? Is it uh, about learning from perspectives? Is it about understanding different cultures? Is it about 
better understanding where my identity sits in the world. Yes. Right. That, that growth, that thriving happens when I think about the work I do. And when I was starting out post MBA in that, in that banking job, I was not, I was slowly mm-hmm. dying on the inside. So you know, speaking of looking back, I, I think you're almost 10 years graduated from business school. If you can reflect back on that, what, what did that experience teach you? There's a lot of lessons through, through the business school experience, right? And I've been talking to people recently who are thinking about going to business school or grad school, given the, the economic downturn, right? It, it's a wonderful place to learn and it's an accelerant, right? So you can go faster if you know what you want to do, but it will not be a substitute for a lack of interest or, or lack of aspiration. And what I, what I appreciate the most about it is that it exposes you to a lot of different ideas in a very short period of time and a large number of people in a very confined space. So learning how to deal with a team member who shirks and doesn't carry their weight in a team project, you can't replicate that by reading a book. Conversely, you can't replicate the, the amazing environment or energy that happens when you're in a group with people who you work well with and you just create these amazing ideas that turns into an amazing project or paper that you get a really good grade on, right? So that interaction, I think, is, is, is what I'm most grateful for. And I had a professor who taught two of my classes, uh, one called Leading Teams and Organizations and one on Negotiation. And the comment he made to me is that you treat the classroom like a social lab, testing these theories, but in real life. And I'm like, that's exactly what I was doing. And, and mm-hmm. that opportunity to treat the classroom like a lab was something that I really enjoyed because you get a, a lesson or a theory, I'd be like, okay, how can I go test this in real life today? And yeah. the, the, the example that comes to mind is in my negotiation class, one of the negotiations is you're not allowed to say anything to your partner. Okay. You have to take yep. a piece of paper and write out what you're willing to pay and what the other person's willing to sell at. And the negotiated price basically determines your success in this negotiation. So I decided to experiment and I knew you had have like, I think 10 or 20 rounds of negotiation. So I was trying to, I think, buy at, as close to 10 as possible. And she was trying to sell as close to 11 as possible. So I wrote 10 on every piece of paper and turned them all up and put them all in front of me. So she looks at me perplexed and I, I you know, I go first, I'll pay you 10. She writes 11, puts it across. I'm like, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, all the way. Normally these two lines come together and you meet a price at 1050. Neither of us budged. So the two of us completely failed the assignment. And my professor's like, I have never seen a negotiation like this in my entire like, teaching career. I'm like, is that good for the class? Like, good for the class, bad for you. You, you failed this negotiation. <laughs> but it's a wonderful lesson because there's no downside to that. Like, yeah, if I get a crappy grade on one negotiation, there are five or six others. But that lesson around what did I try and fail at versus try and succeed at, like those experiences, you don't get them just by reading a book. For sure. And my uh, my colleague at the Texas McComb School of Business, uh, Tina Mabley, she likes to liken the MBA experience to a test kitchen where yeah. you you can go to to do exactly what you just said. And it is a really great place to do that. And I find that the people who tend to get the most out of the experience are the ones, I think, honestly, like you, who are curious, curious, curiously driven, right? And are willing to kind of experiment and explore. Like a lot of things in life, I think the MBA is the experience that you make of it. And the I think being able to use that time, obviously to learn, but also to explore, experiment, I think 
from my experience, at least just talking with lots and lots of people, those to me, at least anecdotally seem to be the people who seem to get the most out of it and seem to have taken the most lessons from that experience and uh, brought them forward with them in their careers. And I think the other thing too, is like, you know, I went to school in Nashville. I'm from San Francisco originally. Mm -hmm. It's a very strong culture contrast, right? And 10 years ago, Nashville was on the precipice of being the new hit city. You know, the city has boomed tremendously, but there was a lot of experience that I had there just in Nashville and even within the school itself that I look back upon as having taught me a, a lot about my identity as an Asian American, as a Chinese American, right? Because, you know, people would say things to me uh, like, wow, your English is really good. And I'd say, well, yeah, it should be. I'm American. And, and learning <laughs> yeah. how to respond to microaggressions or statements of assumption because people haven't met that many Asian Americans in their life, right? That was another valuable lesson that I wouldn't have gotten had I been in New York City or been in Los Angeles, or been in other places where maybe there is more understanding of where people come from and the fact that, yes, there are plenty of Asian Americans who speak English with no accent. And, and right. I think that, you know, it, it obviously is, is a rapidly growing city, but it's a city in the middle of Tennessee, right, with a very different set of, of, of perspectives that I would have found in Chicago, like where I live now, or, or Seattle, where I went to college. So I'm incredibly grateful for that because much like rehearsals make you into a better performer on the stage, it gave me those practice runs to address things that I, I don't stand for these days. And I didn't have the vocabulary to respond to 10 plus years ago, but now I do. I'd love to maybe, and you, you started to do it a little bit. I, I would love to kind of have you think about and reflect for a second. How do you think about your career today? And how is that different than perhaps 10 years ago when you entered business school? I mean, really night and day kind of contrast. Like, I mean, the, is it the same person who's still talking to you? Yeah, but the, the lessons I've learned coming out of business school, making career transitions, making life decisions, they give me so much more perspective than I, I could have fathomed pre-business school. And, and for a little context too, like today, married, father of two, you know, I live in the suburbs, which is just a real shocker to me. Like, I, I, if you told me, 10 years ago that I'd be living in the burbs with a freezer and a fridge in my garage or that I even have a garage, I would be laughing my ass off. I think it's ridiculous. I still think it's ridiculous, but it's it's now my life, right? And when, when I think about my, my career today, right, it's taken me a number of steps to be much more convicted in the work I do, the skills that I have, the values that I bring to my daily life and my daily job, right? And, and I, I think that 10 plus years ago, I might have been accused of being confident, but not having the means to back it up. And the difference is that today I come across as confident and convicted, but because I know what I want, I've gotten it in my work. And I bring a certain set of skills and experiences that I think give me a competency in that work. And I've only been in the, in the, the diversity and inclusion world for less than a year, right? But to get here it took me over 100 applications just over the last couple of years. So to create that story, to create that conviction was not something that was only born in those two years, but it was, that's the crucible kind of where, you know, I, I, I built this perspective and kind of got to my work today. And I think that I'm incredibly grateful for the learnings and the perspectives I have now, because I had a conversation this morning with a woman who's switching from law into doing DEI work, diversity, equity, inclusion. And the point I made to her was that 
to be here doing this work, even with the, the downturn and even with the kind of the vulnerability that certain DEI practitioners face these days with getting cut from their jobs, I am incredibly grateful for this work and this opportunity to do this work. And if it ended today, yeah, I'd be sad, but I'd still be incredibly grateful for the time I had. That said, I hope it doesn't end because I want to keep doing it. But I think, you know, that that transformation came about because I was willing to be persistent. I was willing to be uncomfortable and worked out. Aaron, I've loved this conversation and I would love to keep continuing it, but uh, I want to go now to my speed round. And so I've got a couple questions for you that I would love to ask you and get your gut reactions to, if you'll indulge me. Sure. All right. So first question, what does career success mean to you? Know what you want by finding what you want, do it well, and feel satisfied when you have that combination. I love that. Who is a leader that you admire and respect? My boss. Nicole Barnes Marshall. Uh, any anything specific about her that you admire? She gave me a chance. She teaches me every day, and we have the kind of relationship between a, a manager and direct report that's around constructive challenge, discussion, lots of agency and autonomy. The combination of which I've never had in my career before. Sounds like a great boss. Yeah. Okay, last question. What is one piece of career advice that was so good that you have to share it with others? When I was working at Merrill Lynch, you know, almost 20 years ago, uh, my boss then told me uh, to earn the right to be a generalist, you have to be an amazing specialist first. Do something, one thing really well, and then you get a shot at doing something else. I don't I love that. always agree with that, but I appreciate it because it, it reflects you got to do something well to be credible. Right. If you do it half-assed or you do it, you know, poorly, you don't you don't deserve another shot. But yeah. you don't know what you can try to do until you've tried a few different things. It goes back to that point I made earlier, right? So try things. See what you do well. Do that thing really well, and then you get the the chance to do other things really well. Aaron Fung, thank you so much for joining the NBA Insider Podcast and for being a guest on the show. I've loved this conversation. Likewise. Thanks for the time, Al. Appreciate it. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.